Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Since we started a few minutes later, I promise the sermon will be 10 minutes shorter than normal. I'm just kidding. No, no, don't clap for that. Today's readings and the propers revolve a good deal around the law. And as Christians, the law is important to us. Liturgically, we recite either the Ten Commandments, like we did last week, or the summary of the law at the beginning of every Mass. And of course, it's the summary of the law that makes its appearance in today's Gospel reading, giving us a kind of liturgical deja vu. The law is important because it's holy and good, and it always points us back to the one who gave it. Yet throughout the scriptures, the perfect law comes into contact with fragile humans who cannot keep it perfectly. In Genesis chapter 3, we read about the first sin, a violation of God's law. And there was only one of them back then, too. It should have been easy. The rest of the Old Testament is a story of perpetual disappointment as Israel continues to break the law which was given to them through Moses. In Hosea chapter 4, the prophet gives us a graphic description of the moral devolution of the people of Israel. He says, Hear the word of the Lord, O people of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or kindness and no knowledge of God in the land. They're swearing, lying, killing, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and murder follows murder. Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish, and also take the beasts of the field, and the birds of the air, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. The people's lack of faithfulness to the Lord was so thoroughly depraved, it affected not only the practitioners of wickedness, but even the very ecological system that they inhabited. It's a total reversal of the command God gives to Adam and Eve, that they should have dominion over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and the animals on the land. Now those things are all taken away from them. So we can say that the purpose of the law then is twofold, because here it provides not so much something to aspire to, so much as a condemnation. So on the one hand, the law can give us an ideal, a template for how we should live our lives, but it also can function as a measuring stick for sin, plumbing the depths of our wickedness, showing us how we always fall short. In his epistle to Galatians, to the Galatians, St. Paul discusses the relationship between the law and sin in a way that's enlightening on this topic. In effect, his argument is that the law is good because it comes from God, and therefore it reveals something about his nature. There's nothing wrong with the law in itself, but we, because we're sinful, cannot keep the law. And even if somehow we could miraculously obey all its 600-plus commands, the law cannot enliven our souls. It cannot turn this heart of stone into a heart of flesh. It doesn't solve the fundamental human problem. 
So the problem isn't with the law then. The problem is with us. The law becomes a constant reminder of our shortcomings, our inability to measure up to holiness and righteousness. And this is precisely why grace, which is at the heart of our faith, is so important. Christ did what we could not do. He lived a life that fulfilled the law and therefore was able to offer himself as the perfect sacrifice to the Father, enabling us to have communion with God, to participate in the divine life. Without that grace, we would always be under the condemnation of the law. It's in his sacrifice on the cross that we are enriched. That is, in our baptism, we are born again because we die to sin and are raised again in a spiritual sense through our identification with the Lord. This benefit is what Paul in the epistle this morning calls being made rich. And what he means is that by our participation in the sacramental life of the church, we receive a great gift. Just as Israel was to remember God's deliverance of them from slavery and bondage in Egypt, which then became a perpetual impetus for not only confidence in him, but obedience to him, so we, members of the church, can look at our entrance into the church at our baptism and his continual provision for us in the sacrament of the altar as a perpetual impetus for our confidence in the Lord and our obedience to him. The same God who saved us is the same God who sustains us to the end, not by our own power, but by his work. In the gospel reading this morning, we see the reverse of what happened last week. Last week, Jesus entrapped the Pharisees by posing them questions they could not answer about healing on the Sabbath. This week, however, we see the Pharisees, in particular a lawyer among them, attempting to trick Jesus by asking him the question, which is the greatest commandment of the law? probably looking for Jesus to choose a particular law at which the Pharisee could then pit other laws against that law and say, well, what about these laws? Aren't these more important? Jesus, of course, answers this challenge by providing the summary of the law, which we read today. And then he poses a question back at the Pharisees. Whose son is the Christ? Now, at that time, the Jews were looking for a new David, a king who would liberate the people from the foreign imposition of the Romans and restore national autonomy to the nation of Israel. While Jesus certainly is depicted as the new David, here he pulls a quotation from Psalm 110 to say that if the Messiah is David's son, then why would David refer to him as the Lord? So the first part of the reading revolves around the greatest commandment in the law. And Jesus tells us that that commandment is to love God with all of who we are. But this is not a commandment that can ever stand alone because we don't exist with God in a vacuum. Our relationship with him is not privatized. We interact with God through our interaction with others. And therefore, we must love our neighbor as ourself. And in these kinds of relations, then, the cross becomes the model for us. God proves his love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
And therefore, we can say we love him because he first loved us. God's love for us is exhibited on the cross. And so our love for him and therefore for others must be cruciform or cross-shaped. The result of that love gets extrapolated further in the second half of the reading. Like I said, the Jews believed that the Messiah would be a son of David, and they aren't wrong. St. Matthew's gospel begins with a genealogy that explicitly connects our Lord to David. But Jesus' argument, based on Psalm 110 here, where David called Messiah Lord, is meant to undermine some of the assumptions that the Pharisees held. We can point out, first of all, that typically a son is not called Lord by his father. I've never called Jude or Rowan Lord, even though they sometimes try to act like it. (laughs) A son is, in a certain sense, inferior in rank to their father. But we know that the Messiah is superior to David. And why is that? Well, not only does David call him Lord, but if you look at the other part of the quotation from Psalm 110... It says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Who are these enemies? Well, in the Old Testament and in Jesus' day, most Jews would have interpreted that as other nations, the surrounding nations that seek to enslave them, that seek to oppress them. In the New Testament, however, the locust shifts from Israel and the other nations to a spiritual kind of warfare. In Colossians 2.15, St. Paul says, Christ disarmed the principalities and powers by which he means Satan, sin, and death, and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in him. The author of Hebrews says something similar. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same nature, that through death, He might destroy him who has the power of death, that is, the devil. The love of God, made manifest on the cross, actually sets us free by destroying those forces which hold us in bondage. We are set free from sin, from death, and from the devil, so that we might find true liberty, not in bodily autonomy or self-autonomy, But in the law of love, which St. Paul defines by saying the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this sentence. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. How different is this from our culture's shallow and self-centered understanding of love that's based on what we get out of it? Real love, biblical love, sacrificial love isn't this way because real love is a decision to be self-sacrificial for the other. We have the ultimate template for that in Christ's love for us, which is so great that he went all the way to the cross. And while God's love is perfect, human love is capacious. The more we do it, the more we can do it. And this, I think, connects to our collect this morning and its focus on withstanding the temptations that we face from the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
If you read Genesis 3, the serpent doesn't persuade Eve through rational argumentation. He doesn't give her a syllogism or a checklist of propositional truths. Rather, he cuts straight to her desire, her desire to be God, her desire for the fruit that looks good. Temptation often arises from our disordered desires, whether those desires are conditioned by the world, the flesh, or the devil. But when we feed those desires, wherever they come from, we warp our loves. So how ought we to turn from temptation? And I think the answer from our readings this morning and the collect is by emulating Christ in his self-sacrificial love. It's not something that we do because we hope that if we're good enough at it, God will love us. But rather, it's because we know he already does love us that we, emulating that love, can become those who pursue what is true, good, and beautiful. So cling to the cross, the cross of Christ, and love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And therefore, love your neighbor as yourself. This is how we withstand temptation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.